Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. It's likely that at each well-child check, since the very first time you stepped into your pediatrician's office with your newborn, your doctor reviewed something called the growth curve. Mm -hmm. And this is a kind of a funny-looking chart with multiple side-by-side curved lines, and the top line usually represents the 95th percentile. The bottom line usually represents the 5th percentile. And then your child's age is on the horizontal axis, and their height, weight, head size, or their BMI is on the vertical axis. Right. And if you've seen the same provider for a really long time or the whole, you know, childhood through adolescence of your child, it's probably dotted with all of their measurements from each visit over the course of their childhood. These curves give your medical provider a good sense of what your child's normal is compared with other kids their age and when to get worried when they start to deviate from their own norm. Yeah, but the problem with these growth curves is that they can often be confusing, worrisome, or even misinterpreted by parents. And so one study that was published in the Journal of Pediatrics in 2009 surveyed parents about their knowledge and attitudes towards this growth monitoring in the office. And really 64% of parents thought that it was important to be shown these growth charts to see how their child was growing and developing, but only 56% actually could identify the definition of a percentile. So they can kind of be confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see how these graphs could lead to some confusion for parents because they're they're kind of complicated. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's easy to worry when you think there's any little thing changing with your child. And so it does involve some reassurance. And for our end as providers, knowing when to reassure and when to worry. So Let's start our discussion talking about what information the growth curves actually tell us and which curves are most commonly used in the office setting. Yeah, so in the U.S., the two most commonly used growth charts that you'll see in pediatric offices are one developed by the World Health Organization, the WHO, which was last updated in 2006, and then one developed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Growth Curve, the CDC Growth Curve, And this was last updated in 2000. And the recommendation is used to use the WHO growth chart for kids that are under two years of age and then switch to the CDC growth curve at age two. So why the switch? Why make it more complicated and confusing for providers and for parents? Yeah, it's a good question. And the reason is because the CDC growth curve and the data that was included to develop it included a large number of infants between the 1970s and the 1990s, regardless of their economic status. And at this time, during during the 70s through the 90s, um, infants were not as likely to be breastfed as they are now. So really only like up 33% were still breastfed up to three months of age, which we know there's more children that breastfeed longer now. So it was thought that because of this, it was actually over-identifying kids who were underweight because formula-fed babies were chunkier um, on the average. And the WHO growth curve enrolled infants who were exclusively or predominantly breastfed for at least four months and then continued to breastfeed until 12 months in addition to other 
complementary foods and purees and things like that introduced around four to six months. So um, they enrolled people from the U.S., but also Brazil, Norway, India, Oman, Ghana, and um, had participants that were considered more from a higher socioeconomic background so that access to food wasn't influencing their nutritional intake. So the WHO curve is like a growth standard, if that makes sense, how a kid should grow under ideal conditions. Okay, so that makes sense. So to use the WHO growth curve for under two and the CDC for greater than two years of age, and then then this should reflect really normal growth in our current society, in our current system. So we have provided links to these commonly used growth curves on our website if you'd like to become familiar with them. And it's also important to know that your provider may use a different curve altogether if your child fits into a special population that grows differently. So we use different growth curves in the beginning for babies who are born premature. We have a specific growth curve for kids with trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, Klinefelter syndrome, achondroplasia, so a lot of different genetic conditions. Um, And so if you have a child that fits into one of these specific groups, they're going to have their own growth curve. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at the growth curve with your provider, there'll be a number of lines. And we previously mentioned the bottom line usually represents the fifth percentile. Sometimes it's the second percentile, depends on the curve. And this is the second or fifth percentile for age. And then the top line represents the 95th to 98th percentile. So if your female infant, let's say, has a weight at the 80th percentile for age, a height at the 40th, and the head size at the 95th, what that means is that compared to 100 girls of the same age, she's heavier than 80 of them, taller than 40, and has a bigger head than 95. But it's important to remember that her percentile is not usually a concern so that these aren't all at 80 is not a concern, but instead we like to look at how they grow and track over time. So let's start by discussing what normal looks like for each of the growth curves, and then we can discuss some changes in the growth curves that might be cause for concern. Okay, so the first one we're going to talk about is the weight curve. And we know that after babies are born, they usually lose weight initially. The amount of weight loss is different for each newborn, but as pediatricians, we usually expect to see a weight loss of up to 10% of their birth weight, followed by regaining weight, usually around a rate of 30 grams or one ounce per day, until the infant is about three months or so. Right, and a lot of this initial weight loss has to do with breastfeeding, allowing time for mom's milk to come in, um, and so we expect babies to be back to the weight they were born at by about 10 to 14 days old. Mm -hmm. And then most infants will triple their birth weight by one year of age. Right. So if your infant was born at the 90th percentile and over the course of the first year, you notice their weight curve may be changing a little bit and they're slowly drifting down and starting now to track along the 40th percentile line. This is usually nothing to worry about if they're feeding well, they're having good development, they're hitting their milestones, and they're having normal stool and urine output. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting is that birth size in most cases tends to have more to do with maternal factors and less with genetic potential. So shifting of the growth curve between 6 to 18 months of age can be within normal limits at times. But we should not see this after around 2 to 3 years of age. 
And when looking at the curves, you can see that the slope of the line or how steep it is changes during periods of normally increased growth, like puberty or times of slower growth. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of levels out at other times when there's less growth. So let's shift our discussion now to height. And usually this will be measured with your child laying down until they're two years of age and then standing after that. So when they're laying down, this is technically length and not height. And this can be tricky to obtain accurately because the kids sometimes are wiggling around and might not want to straighten out all the time. Screaming, trying to get up. But usually kids will double the length from when they were born by the time they're three to four years old. Um, And the amount of growth per year, again, is determined by their stage of development. So kids grow most rapidly in early infancy with slower growth rates in early childhood, and then rapid growth again later in puberty. And it's important to remember that, again, all of this has to be viewed in the context of each individual child's growth potential or how tall their parents are. Something that's very unique to pediatrics is measuring of the head circumference. This measures the largest circumference of a child's head distance from above the eyebrows and ears and around the back of the head. Yes, the head circumference is measured for the first three years of a child's life, usually. Um, And the head size in infants really gives us a window into possible issues um, because of the fact that the infants and newborns have this open fontanelle, which allows for head growth. Yeah, so the fontanelles, these are the soft spots on the head. There are two, anterior and posterior, or towards the front or towards the back. And these are where the cranial bones meet. And any parent can feel the anterior fontanelle pretty easily until it typically closes. On average, this is between 7 and 19 months of age. Mm -hmm. And we know that the skull typically grows about 30% in the first year of life. BMI, or body mass index, compares a child's weight to their height. The BMI is calculated from the formula weight divided by height squared. And you can do this with pounds and inches, but we generally use the metric system and calculate using kilograms and centimeters. Yep, in medicine. And we look at the BMI in kids two years and older. Before this, we use something called weight for length, which is a similar um, calculation. In adult medicine, they categorize BMI according to the number, for example, 25 to 30 is considered overweight, and over 30 is considered obese. But, of course, in pediatrics, we always like to do things differently. We use percentiles. So a BMI for age between the 85th and 95th percentile for our peds defines being overweight, and greater than the 95th percentile defines obesity. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, a BMI below the 5th percentile would be considered underweight for age. So now that we know a little bit more about each of the growth curves we use in the pediatrics office to monitor growth and some normal growth trends, let's turn our attention to what may ring some alarm bells for your physician and that may indicate that more investigation is needed. So when I see a child's weight or height or head circumference has changed pretty significantly from previous visits, what do you think the first thing I do is? You ask them how much they're eating? (laughs) Well, First, I actually have it rechecked or I recheck it myself because human error is one of the most common reasons for these changes. 
Well, that makes sense because, of course, you want to make sure that the data is correct before you act on it. Exactly. So now if it's been rechecked and it was accurate, um, we usually use the rule that shifting of the growth curve more than two lines, which in weight can be termed failure to thrive, is a cause for concern and requires more attention and follow-up. But even subtle changes before this may require investigation and closer follow-up depending on your child's age and the specific situation. At a minimum, your pediatrician may ask you about their diet, like how often is your child breastfeeding and for how long? How is your supply? How much formula do they take? How are you mixing the formula? Are they a picky eater? In older children, they will ask about psychosocial stressors, which may affect appetite or bowel habits, since malabsorption may result in loose stools and cause weight loss. And we'll look at both the weight and the height. Is just one affected or are both decreasing together because that gives us differing clues. There are really a lot of causes for these deviations, and we don't have time to get into all of them today. But to highlight a few in the process of how we think through these, they're usually classified into three buckets. The first is inadequate calories in. In infants and toddlers, this would be breastfeeding issues, lack of access to food, maybe severe reflux or spit up so the food doesn't get to where it needs to go. And then in older kids, depression or eating disorders may result in um, inadequate caloric intake. The second bucket would be inadequate caloric absorption. So for young kids, infants, and toddlers, this could be a food allergy. It could be a gut malabsorptive process, which means they're just kind of losing calories without absorbing them from the the intestines. It could be a malformation of the GI tract, um, like pyloric stenosis, In older kids, we think about things like celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, or calorie wasting due to untreated or undiagnosed diabetes. And the last category is excessive caloric expenditure. So this would indicate that your child's body is working so hard to take care of another organ or system that it's using all its calories towards that and not for growth. So an example of these would be thyroid disease, underlying heart disease, lung disease like cystic fibrosis, immunodeficiencies or cancers, which result in hypermetabolic states. So if your pediatrician sees a big change in your child's weight, depending on your individual child's exam symptoms, they may recommend obtaining some lab work. They may refer to a specialist depending on their specific symptoms. And they may recommend increasing calories and following up shortly, maybe in a couple weeks or a month, to repeat the weight and make sure that things aren't continuing to decrease. So when we look at the height specifically, there are a few common, common cases where kids can tend to be on the shorter side for their age. And the two most common are familiar short stature and constitutional growth delay. And neither of these are cause for concern. And one nice way to differentiate is to calculate something called the mid-parental height, which we discussed in an episode we did recently on puberty. If parents are short, then it's expected that their kid may have a lower height percentile throughout life because of their genetic potential. Um, But a way to know this for sure is to get something called a bone age Mm x-ray. So a bone age is an x-ray of the hand, and this determines how open a child's growth plates are and how many more years of growth they likely have, the growth potential. So 
In constitutional growth delay, a child is born at a normal length, usually, and their genetic height potential from their parents is normal, so their parents aren't particularly short. Usually, we see their height curve start to shift downward by like three to six months of age, and they kind of stay pretty low, maybe around the third percentile. When we get a bone age on these kids, the x-ray shows that they still have many years of growth left past what their age is. So, for example... A 12-year-old who is on the short end for their age and their parents are normal height, we get the bone age x-ray and it shows that their bone age is eight years of age. Then that is much less than their actual age of 12. So it shows they have a lot of growth left and we um, expect them to have that catch-up growth during puberty and beyond and expect that they will reach a normal adult height. In contrast to those kids with constitutional growth delay, children with familiar short stature will have a bone age that matches their actual age. Neither of these conditions will affect a kid's overall health or development. There are some times when we worry about short stature, and some of these signs would be lack of linear growth, so they're like flatlining on their growth curve. This always needs to be investigated and could indicate a hormone problem like growth hormone deficiency that may be caused by a serious medical condition. And another concerning situation would be weight gain or obesity plus declining height velocity. And this is particularly concerning for a hormone problem also. And moving our discussion to the head circumference, if that starts to increase or decrease, this can also be cause for concern. Right. So after you've remeasured to confirm the size, because head circumference measurements can really be kind of tricky, then in children with large heads or macrocephaly, your pediatrician may do something which may surprise you. (laughs) They might ask if they can measure your head, the parent's head. (laughs) I definitely do this sometimes in the office. Um, And that's because one of the most common causes of a large head circumference is something called familial macrocephaly. And this is something that I'm worried my soon-to-be child is going to have because my husband is Australian. Not to rag on the Australians, but they tend to have massive heads. He cannot find a hat here in the U.S. I didn't realize that. (laughs) I don't know if there's actually data to back that up, so someone please send me the the study of the head circumference in the Australians, but... but right, your study of an N of one my reveals N of, that. of him and his dad, they both uh-huh. have giant heads. And we have another Australian friend also can't find a hat in the U.S., so th- N of three. There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if the head circumference is rapidly enlarging, you have to consider other causes of this, including hydrocephalus, where there's too much cerebral spinal fluid. This is the fluid that bathes our brains. If this accumulates too much in the brain, it could cause the middle of the brain, the ventricles, to dilate and cause an enlarged head. Or there could be something even even more concerning, like a brain mass. Right. If the fontanelle or soft spot is still open, your pediatrician can actually order a head ultrasound, which looks through this little open spot um, to make sure that there is no increased accumulation of fluid. Or they may order something like an MRI of the brain. If the head is shrinking in contrast to growing too quickly, they also may proceed similarly and look into other genetic syndromes or other causes for this. There are many more causes of poor growth, for example, genetic causes, hormone abnormalities, and chronic diseases such as kidney disease. And that's why following consistently with your child's clinician is so important. 
So we've largely focused our conversation today on poor growth. Um, Growing too quickly can also be a cause for concern and something that definitely needs to be addressed early. And so your clinician will look at this in the context of your child's history and exam findings. For example, like, do they have signs of early puberty or other development? Mm -hmm. And while there can be pathologic causes for increasing height and weight too quickly, um, you know, sometimes the most common these days is just increasing weight and body mass index from poor nutrition and lack of exercise. Mm-hmm. And so we know that here in the U.S., we are definitely facing an epidemic of obesity with just about 20% of children and teens classifying as obese, which means their BMI is greater than the 95th percentile, like we mentioned. And although these conversations can be really difficult to have, um, an increasing weight actually provides you and your child and their physician an opportunity to discuss these really, really important lifestyle changes, nutrition changes that can benefit your child and your really your whole family, not only now, but for the rest of their life. We hope this podcast episode brought you a little clarity into the growth curves that are commonly used in the pediatrician's office. We discussed why we use them, normal variations in growth, and when your provider may want to investigate changes in growth patterns. Let's summarize today's topic. So growth curves are a really important tool to track healthy growth. However, they should always be viewed in the context of an individual child, and so you do not need to worry if all of your kids' growth percentiles are not at 50. (laughs) The WHO growth curve is typically used for kids less than two years of age and the CDC curve for children two years of age and older. If your child tracks along their percentile line, no matter what that number is, it's typically considered normal growth. But if your child starts to deviate from their normal, be it downtrending or uptrending, that may be cause for further investigation. So your doctor will gather more history, do a thorough exam of your child, and determine the appropriate next steps. We would like to thank Dr. Lindsay Lumba-Albrecht, a pediatric endocrinologist at UC Davis Children's Hospital, for reviewing this episode, although Dr. Lena and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. And that reminds me of a growth joke. Okay. Did you know that a giraffe can grow up to 18 feet? No. But they usually only have four. That's a good one. I will start this by saying usually when I look at growth curves, even if they bounce around a little bit, for the vast majority of kids, I reassure the parents. And they do find their little line and they bounce up and down a little bit around their line. And and sometimes things get like, for example, when kids turn one and they stop getting formula and they start eating more solids, they can kind of drift down a little bit and then things pick back up or they get a little picky and things drift down a little bit and they pick back up. So the majority of my time in clinic is spent reassuring parents about the growth curve. Mm -hmm. But one of the um, most interesting things and one of the things where I was like, oh, this is such a useful tool was a kid that I saw that really wasn't growing very well. Um, And we ended up, you know, following her and and repeating it. And and then we got some labs and they didn't look too bad, but her creatinine, which was a marker of kidney function, was mm-hmm. a little bit elevated. And I noticed that and I was like, well, it's a kind of high. And I think it had been done 
by a specialist, we had sent her to the GI specialist for for this poor growth. And and I repeated it three months later, and it was a little higher. And she Mm. ended up having chronic kidney disease. Mm. Um, And because her body was working so hard with her kidney issues, she just wasn't able to gain and put on weight. And she was short as well. So mm-hmm. that was one of those times where the growth curve gave me the clue to the diagnosis. Yeah, and who, you know, who would have thought, you know, kidneys and growth curves, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So they are really a nice window into so many different things and and just like we mentioned the reason that, you know, it's so important to follow with your physician so frequently, you may think, "Oh, I have to go in at 2 weeks and 2 months and 4 months and 6 months and but we really use that information to to know when to worry and when to reassure. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 